The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. It's what the learner sees, what the learner experiences, who the learner relates to. It's the environment. We have very smart learners and they can see what's happening around them and begin to intuit what's important and what's not important. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. The subject of this podcast is based on a paper from the Annals of Internal Medicine that was published in February 27, 2018. The title is Hidden Curricula, Ethics and Professionalism, Optimizing Clinical Learning Environments in Becoming and Being a Physician, a physician paper for the American College of Physicians. Joining me today to discuss this paper is Dr. Jack Endy. Dr. Endy is the immediate past president of the American College of Physicians. He's a noted clinician educator. He's had several very important positions. He's been a program director and president of the Association of Program Directors in Internal Medicine. He was the chair of the Department of Medicine at Penn Presbyterian Medical Center in Philadelphia for 17 years. He is the co-chair of Penn Medicine's Academy of Master Clinicians. He's been very active in the American College of Physicians and is both author and editor of the Teach in Clinical Medicine series of books that the American College produced. He's also a very good friend. Well, Jack, thanks so much for joining us today. I think the first thing we should do is just have a discussion about what the hidden curriculum is. Well, thank you, Bob. And I share your reaction to the article. I, too, found it interesting. The hidden curriculum is somewhat difficult to define concept and I've always found that people are helped by first understanding what it is not and contrast it to other forms of curriculum that are part of the educational scene. Clearly there's the formal curriculum, occasionally called the written curriculum, and that's what you could read in a course catalog. It's what the dean might send you in terms of learning objectives. It's the schedule. It's the actual explicit statement endorsed statement of here is what the learning experience will include, and that's the formal curriculum. The informal curriculum, which is also important, are those wonderful interactions between attendings and residents, between residents and students, typically around cases, around procedures. That's not formal in the sense that it's always choreographed. It's what happens when people come together to discuss cases or to discuss procedures. Also extremely important that for many of us, particularly two of us on this call, both bedside teachers, that's perhaps the most important part of the experience that we provide for our learners. But then there's also the hidden curriculum, and that's in many instances more important than the other. But the hidden curriculum is the culture. It's what the learner sees, what the learner experiences, who the learner relates to. It's the environment what's happening around you. 
And we have very smart learners, and they can see what's happening around them and begin to intuit what's important and what's not important. So the hidden curriculum might be best thought of as the environment where the learning takes place. I've worked both at major academic medical centers and at regional medical centers. At the academic medical center, part of the hidden curriculum is that if you want to do family medicine or primary care internal medicine, that you're wasting your career. On a regional campus, there was the opposite hidden curriculum, that if you want to do family medicine, you got virtual hugs, emotional hugs, because you were going to fulfill the needs of the community. And so there was a different curriculum in the walls of the institution and through many of the people. That's just one example that we also know the hidden curriculum can be how you treat patients, how you show respect to patients, how you interact with families. What do you think of those concepts as perhaps expanding the definition of hidden curriculum? I think you're onto something very important. Was just at a very specific level, the hidden curriculum may indeed be the most important factor in career choice. The learners, the students, the residents look around and they see the importance attached to certain forms of medicine, certain specialties. They see where the resources are allocated. I believe unavoidably, unconsciously, those all filter into career choice. So by chance, we went to the same medical school, and I actually knew you in medical school. I don't think you knew me because I was uh, an underclassman compared to you, and I was just one of 138 people. And I remember there was a hidden curriculum at our medical school. What do you remember about that, and has that changed over the years? Well, first of all, Bob, I do remember you. We joyfully share that experience. I remember a great deal about the influences that that medical school had on me. And I remembered how much the residents cared. And I so remember how hard they worked and how committed they were to getting the diagnosis correct and to providing the right treatment. It was a total commitment to helping patients. And that's part of the hidden curriculum because I came away believing, feeling, and devoting my career to helping patients. But then I saw other things as well. I saw undoubtedly residents that were doing procedures, perhaps without proper supervision, perhaps without experience. There was not a great attempt to be sure that the patient had the procedure performed by the person who really knew it well, or even to have proper supervision. So I came away committed to patient care, but not really understanding the importance of patient safety. That's something that my generation had to learn as we went about our work and came to it later. I saw the importance of rounds. So that was a strong influence on the importance of clinical teaching. But I also appreciate now that there were a lot of things left out. And some people use still another term called the null curriculum, things that are not taught. I think that's best thought of as part of the hidden curriculum, the lessons that were not emphasized. We did not talk about professionalism. We didn't talk about the socioeconomic determinants of health. We didn't really talk about what the patient was experiencing as they went through this journey called illness. And those things, too, had to be learned later on. I remember several of our attendings who influenced me greatly, either directly or indirectly. There was an endocrinologist, and he had some of my colleagues on a fourth-year rotation. 
He did an experiment on sitting down at the bedside versus standing up at the bedside and then going back and seeing how long the patient thought he was in the room. And I remember one of my colleagues told me about that. And from that day on, I knew to sit down at the bedside. And it wasn't that anybody told me one way or the other. They demonstrated it to me. So here's the question. I think we're starting to explore why we have a hidden curriculum, and it's because the way we act influences our learners. And that's true for how residents act as well as how attendings act. What should we be doing about that? You and I are both very committed clinician educators, and we hopefully influence some of our junior faculty and influence our residents. How do we help define this hidden curriculum so that we get those positive results from the hidden curriculum and minimize those negative results? Well, I think once again, you're on to something very important here. One misunderstanding about the hidden curriculum is that it's like the climate. It's not something that an individual can really influence, certainly not on a day-to-day basis. It's either hot or cold, it's either raining or sunny. When you come to the hidden curriculum, the faculty have a real role here. One is to have zero tolerance when we observe lapses in professionalism, when we observe residents walking into a room without knocking, when we see them walking into a room without washing their hands. If we let those go, then the other people on grounds may begin to sense that, you know, this is really not important. Yes, we're supposed to wash our hands, but everybody walked in without it, the attendant didn't even say a word. So maybe it's not as important as those signs in the hallway make it out to be. On the other hand, when the attending stops and says, gee, we really should be seated when we're at the bedside. We should be knocking. We should be, uh, when we walk into the room, we should be addressing the patients respectfully, using their first name only if they give us permission to. That's the way the attendants really contribute to the hidden curriculum and influence it. Likewise, particularly more senior clinicians and those with responsibility for teaching programs, they have to be the ones to advocate strongly for the proper resources for teaching. The allocation of time and what is taught, that's the way you can really can influence the entire experience, including the hidden curriculum. So you and I are both very proud that the American College of Physicians brought this out as a position paper trying to influence the thought about how important the hidden curriculum is. As a recent president of the college, could you tell the listeners how the college is trying to address this and things that we can do from an organizational standpoint as well as by individual role models? Well, the college has taken on some very important issues. And right now, we are currently thinking deeply about how we can reinforce the role of the internist to become the master diagnostician, the person who's able to take an excellent history with good communication skills, do an excellent physical exam, and come out with the correct diagnosis and the correct approach to the patient without overusing technology. That sends a very clear message about the importance of clinical skills. The college has taken positions on things like the socioeconomic determinants of health and put great energy and effort into that. That sends a message as well that where one lives and how one earns their income, who their social support system are, is important for health. And that's the hidden curriculum. Likewise, the other position papers that the college has come out with recently emphasize the role of the physician in patient safety and also things such as firearm violence. 
who would have thought that a medical society would have taken such a strong and comprehensive position on something like firearm safety? But they did, and that, again, is part of the hidden curriculum. It expands the responsibility of the internist. It expands the domain of internal medicine to include things like firearm safety. So when I think about hidden curriculum, a lot of times I think about how we sometimes hear patients labeled. We sometimes see physicians not treat all patients in the proper fashion. We also see a lot of patients who don't really understand what's going on. I've really learned over the last three or four years, and it took me a long time in my career to learn this, that I needed to do two things. I needed to make sure that the patient understood what was going to happen each day, and I needed to make sure that the learners understood how I was having those conversations and why I was having those conversations. So I've been doing something, and I'm going to suggest this to all educators, is when I sit down and have a conversation with a patient, it could be breaking bad news, it could be just letting them know where we are, admitting that we're not sure what's going on and so we're going to have an infectious disease consultant come by or a cardiologist come by. And then when I go out in the hall, I sort of debrief the students and residents, say, what skills was I using? How did you feel about that? Is this something that you can adopt in your own day-to-day interaction with patients? Trying to always give patients the respect that they deserve. What types of things do you do on your rounds, Jack? Well, I do like to debrief, and I think that's what you're talking about. And I think you and I are both on the same page doing that. Sometimes, however, I will do things without explaining. You don't want to over-explain and like to just be a, do something and let the students observe without sort of overcooking it, if you will. It's interesting, Bob, the examples you chose about what you're explaining. And those, as I listen to them, fell in the realm of professionalism of how physicians regard patients and how much importance they attach to the patient's experience. And when it comes to teaching something like professionalism, that's where the hidden curriculum takes our greatest importance. When it comes to teaching ethics, when it comes to teaching professionalism, I just don't think that seminars and didactic discussions and even things like role-playing in artificial settings can come close to the importance of observing what's happening in the environment, observing what your role models are doing, observing how the institution is putting resources or not putting resources into the patient experience. And that's all part of the hidden curriculum. Competencies like reading a cardiogram or interpreting a urine analysis they can be taught by the formal curriculum. And as I was reflecting on what I had said and your response to it, in some ways we're taking part of the hidden curriculum and unhiding it by talking about being professional at the bedside right after we've done it or in the hall right after we've been at the bedside rather than a lecture setting. It's much more impactful when it's wrapped around the patient experience. Yes. And Bob, when a teacher does make explicit something that might otherwise be implicit, that itself, just the process of debriefing and explaining and making sure that this was not missed, that's part of the hidden curriculum. Dr. Centaur did not talk only about selecting antibiotics for this particular organism. He actually spent time on our teaching rounds talking about issues related to professionalism, humanism, communication skills, respecting the patient. And therefore, whatever you say, just the fact that you said it, that you devoted time to it, speaks volumes. 
Well, Jack, I think this has been a great overview of some of the major issues in this paper. I think we've expanded some understanding by getting a little more granularity than you can often do in a paper. And I certainly hope the listeners have enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. Thank you, Bob. Great being with you as always. And it's a pleasure speaking with you about something as important as the hidden curriculum. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This interesting discussion of the hidden curricula should resonate with all physicians, medical students, and residents. It's especially important for clinician educators to be aware of and to understand how to adjust the hidden curricula in positive ways. As Dr. Endy stressed, the main thing that we do as attending physicians is teach by example, especially the example of professionalism. How we treat patients, how we treat members of the team matter. If our goal is to produce the type of physicians that we want taking care of us, we have a great responsibility to be the role models that will induce our students, interns and residents, and fellows, and junior faculty to treat patients with great respect, treat colleagues with great respect, and live up to the ideals of the great physician. We commend the American College Physicians for publishing this paper and hope you've enjoyed our discussion. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.